Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast with me, Pastor James, coming out of Sarah Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. We are walking through Genesis one chapter a week, and today we get to Genesis chapter 38. Now, if you've not read Genesis 38 in the recent past, I would encourage you to press pause, go ahead and read it, and then we'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in God's Word. So Genesis 38 has got this pretty strange story of Judah and Tamar. And we read in chapter 38, verse 1, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. Now Judah, if you were with us last week, uh, Judah was, in chapter 37, verse 26, the brother who actually suggested that Joseph be sold into slavery. And Judah's also the brother uh, who, through whose line the Messiah comes. But as of yet, uh, he's not really done anything to distinguish himself or to make us think, you know, wow, maybe this is the guy through whom the Messiah should come. So he leaves this slavery-selling day that they've had and uh, kind of leaves his brothers and goes down to see his friend, uh, we learn that in verse 12, this Adolamite whose name was Hira. And while he's down there, he uh, takes a Canaanite wife. And that's been consistently discouraged uh, for God's people, especially the leaders of God's people, uh, right the way back from chapter 24, 28, a couple of times. Uh, God's people were to be separate and distinct um, it's the idea of holiness being set apart. And so I read recently that a big part of this idea of being separate and holy and pure is that so that there is a pure and separate and holy line and bloodline for the Messiah to be born into. So it's not prejudicial. It's not, you know, God loves these people and hates these people. Uh, it's just that. There is trying to be, there, there needs to be a pure line, a holy line, a separate line uh, for the Messiah to be born into. So, but sadly, Judah goes off and takes a Canaanite wife. And he has three children with her, Ur in verse 3, Onan in verse 4, and Shelah in verse 5. And then we see that uh, for his firstborn son, he also takes a Canaanite wife, which is not surprising, given that he did for himself. And then, sadly, he dies. Well, we read that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We don't read how or why or what he did. But he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then in verse 8, Judah said to Onan, his second son, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, if you've been with us on Friday mornings as we're working through the book of Ruth, uh, we've referred back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, wherein a brother of a deceased man, it was, it was, it was codified into law by the time all the events of Ruth took place. The brother of a dead man would fulfill this duty of raising up a son uh, to keep the family line going for his brother and to make sure that his uh, his widow was pre 
was was provided for because at the time uh, in this ancient culture and with all the customs childless widows were so i read uh, some of the poorest and least provided for uh, members of society so here in genesis 38 it's more of a custom and uh, so judah says look go into your brother's wife and and raise him up uh, raise her up uh, sons offspring children but by the time we get to Ruth and the time of the prophets, it had been codified into law. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, but we see here in verse 9 that Onan knew uh, that this child, this offspring, would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So he's quite comfortable sleeping with her. He's quite comfortable gratifying himself, using her for that. But he doesn't want to fulfill this custom and actually give her a son. Some people will use this verse as a, as a kind of a go-to that masturbation is a sin and that's a completely separate issue. Whatever he's doing here, Onan, he's not masturbating. We read that he actually slept with her, uh, but then would um, do his best to not make her pregnant. The ESV has it as uh, wasting the semen on the ground. Uh, the New King James says that he emitted on the ground. So he's quite comfortable using Tamar for his sexual gratification, but he doesn't want to actually give her the children that he's commended by his dad, head of the family, uh, to give her. And we read in verse 10 that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, uh, and he put him to death also. And then Judah really should have given Tamar in marriage to son number three, to Shelah, uh, but he doesn't. He says, remain a widow in your father's house till num son number three grows up. And we see that he feared that he would die son number three, like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So at the moment, she's not done anything particularly wrong. Uh, she's had two husbands, two brothers die. The customs and the culture of the day would have said that son number three should have been given to her in marriage. Uh, but sadly, Judah doesn't fulfill this and sends her back to her dad's house as a childless widow. And as we continue, then we see in verse 12 that in the course of time, uh, Judah's wife died. And when he was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, here at the Adullamite. And that's what we were talking about back in verse number one. And Tamar finds this out, that he's going to go up to Timnah. So she takes off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. Now she's dressed as a cult prostitute here, those who served false gods uh, through sleeping with other people, through prostitution. And she knows that Judah is going to come past. And we read, very interesting, at the end of verse 14, that for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she knows that this culture and this custom was not forthcoming from Judah. So she's now having to take action herself and to do something about it herself and then there's this kind of sordid account verses 15 through 19 Judah sees that she's a, dressed as a prostitute thinks she's a prostitute she'd covered her face and he they agreed uh, terms of service so to speak and uh, she's trying to get a pledge she you know what's what, what are you going to pay me basically and he says, look, I'll, uh, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And her reply is, well, 
you know, what are you going to give me right now to guarantee? What are you going to pledge to me now that I know you're going to come good uh, later? And he ends up giving her uh, basically ring and belt and walking stick uh, down in verse 18. Uh, so they do the deed. She conceived. And then in verse 19, they kind of went off back to their own things. And she then returns and dresses like a childless widow. And then Judah sends his friend to pay the bill, so to speak, to take back the pledge. Uh, takes this goat. going to go and get Judah's stuff back. And he asks the men of this, this place, this town, you know, where's the cult prostitute? This is in verse 21. Where is the lady? You know, one of these ladies who was sitting here dressed as a prostitute, who we assumed was serving pagan deities by prostitution. Where is this lady? And they've said, look, uh, there's no cult prostitute here. So he goes back to Judah and says, look, sorry, no can do, didn't find her. And uh, Judah says, well, in verse 23, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. And in his mind, then that's probably the end of it. But in verse 24, we see that about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And maybe your Bible says uh, Tamar has uh, played the harlot or engaged in prostitution. But we're talking about the same thing. She's basically had sex with somebody for money outside of marriage. And we see that, moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And then Judah shows how he really feels about Tamar. And he says, bring her out, let her be burned. He obviously doesn't care for this lady. And we see uh, that as she's been brought out, uh, she basically gets a message to Judah and says, look, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. So she's very, it's quite clever here, a little bit manipulative and says, look, this, this stuff belongs to the guy that has made me pregnant. So if you identify it, you can find out who this guy is. So Judah realizes here that the game is up, that he's been played a little bit. And uh, he realizes why all this has happened. And we read in verse 26 that Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again, which means he didn't sleep with her again, knowing who she was. And the implication there is that he wouldn't have done had he known. So the game's up for him. He knows that he should have given her in marriage to the younger son and... Um, the circumstances that bring that about are kind of less than ideal. But I think it's safe to say that he has learned his lesson. The end of the chapter then, verses 27 through 30, we see that um, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And uh, as she is giving birth, one baby's hand appears. Midwife takes a, a scarlet thread as identifying this one's come out first. Uh, but then that one actually wasn't born first. So Perez is born first, and then uh, his twin brother Zerah is born with the scarlet thread wrapped around his hand who looked like he was going to be born first. Sometimes then chapters like this uh, might not be the easiest chapters in the Bible in which to see Jesus. Uh, it might not be the easiest accounts and stories in the Bible in which to see Jesus. But 
Jesus himself said on a couple of occasions that all of Scripture bears witness to me. Now, yes, he can mean big books of the message of Genesis points to Jesus. But each individual account and story in the book will point us to Jesus as well. And I'm going to suggest to you that Genesis 38 is a wonderful example of redemption and grace. Now, maybe you've not been feeling that and thinking that as we've been talking through it together. But in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, Perez is listed in both as an ancestor of Jesus. So this ungodly situation wherein a father-in-law has thought his daughter-in-law is a cult prostitute paid to sleep with her, She's conceived through that and given birth to twins. God has redeemed this very ungodly situation. And Perez finds himself in the the, the family line of Messiah. So despite the people's disobedience, and we've taken wives from people groups that we were counseled not to, because we're trying to keep this line pure and holy and set apart and different, This is all not a great situation, yet God took this ungodly situation, redeemed it, and actually Perez was used uh, in the line of the Messiah. So if this was down to the work of the people to keep this line pure and holy and distinct, it's obviously, evidently not going to work. So where we see that good things are redeemed out of a situation where the people are doing their utmost to keep them unredeemed through their terrible character and conduct, we've got to conclude that it is a work of grace. So this situation was redeemed not through the work of the people, but by the grace of God. And Matthew chapter 1 verse 3, Luke chapter 3 verse 33, both list Perez as an ancestor of Jesus. Next time then, we'll look at Genesis chapter 39, and we'll talk about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. But until then, God bless.